One of the many joys of doing this podcast is getting to meet and introduce you to, even briefly, an incredibly diverse group of amazing people, and Julia Fullerton-Batten is no exception. Julia is a worldwide acclaimed and exhibited fine art photographer with a body of work that encompasses some 12 major projects over 10 years. The foundation of her success was Teenage Stories, an evocative narrative of the transition of a teenage girl to womanhood. Julia frequently falls back on her own recollection from her early years living in Germany, the USA and now London, her parents' divorce and her own early relationships. More recent projects consider difficult and sometimes controversial social issues such as feral children and the ACT, an intimate study of the women in the UK sex industry. Julia's use of unusual locations, highly creative settings, street cast models and cinematic lighting are all hallmarks of her distinctive style of photography. During our conversation, Julia went deep into her own personal life that is the backdrop for much of her work. She's won countless awards for her work and was even commissioned by the National Portrait Gallery in London to shoot portraits of leading people in the National Health Service. I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. I'm Steve Lazarus and this is your London legacy. Well, here we are in West London, and I'm delighted to say it's a beautiful sunny day in Chiswick, and I'm with Julia Fullerton-Batten, have I pronounced that correctly? You have. Fantastic. <laughs> Who is a worldwide, and I mean worldwide, acclaimed and widely exhibited fine art photographer who's done many projects over, I think, over 10 years in the business now? Yeah, probably. I haven't really counted how many years, but it sounds about right. (laughs) And when I was looking and preparing for the the interview over the last few days, I was looking at some of the work that you've done on, uh, which is all presented online on one of your websites. And I have to say, I was absolutely stunned by how beautiful and amazing the work was. And I'd not seen anything quite like it before. So fine art photography is what you specialize in. Mm -hmm. So can you just define what fine art photography is as opposed to regular photography because what we're not talking about photography as in weddings but mitzvahs and uh, mm-hmm. that sort of thing this is this is a very unique type of photography so what is fine art photography that's first a, off that's actually a very good question <laughs> well there's fine art there are different loads of, as you say there's loads of different types of photography like wedding corporate there's also advertising fine art now the way i would describe fine art is it comes from your soul it's your idea, you want to put it together and you it's something you want to say to yourself or say to the world and you want to shoot it for yourself. And it's something that just totally inspires you and there's a reason why you're doing it and only you know the reason why you're doing it. So you're not there to please anybody. <laughs> of course, what tends to happen if a fine art photographer becomes successful is then you have a gallery who then shows the work at art fairs or they give you shows like hopefully you know solo shows ideally and then the work gets so hung in galleries beautifully printed and framed and then collectors will then buy limited edition art prints so how did you first get involved first of all in photography and then make i'm assuming you didn't go straight into fine art photography you made a shift from i don't know regular photography into this sort of area mm-hmm. how did you make that transition how did you first of all get into photography and realize you had a, a passion my and good at it? father was a very passionate amateur photographer and he had a great eye we were living in pennsylvania and he'd go to new york and photograph all the women walking down the streets and um come back with all these 
uh, rolls of film, of course it was film then, mm-hmm. <laughs> and develop them, go into the dark room, print them. And I just found it absolutely fascinating. So he had a dark makeshift dark room at home. And I would watch him go through this process of printing these images and come out with these stunning prints. And I just thought, hey, that's what I want to do. <laughs> so what sort of age um, were you when you realized that was... I was it? young. I was probably about nine years old. I didn't know, you know, he probably gave me, I think he gave me his first camera when I was about 12, 13. It was certainly before we moved to England. And I don't remember this, but he tells me this story where uh, we went to New York and I would just run around photographing a plastic bag blowing in the wind and just photographing it against buildings and in the sky. I, I have no recollection of this whatsoever. And I certainly don't know where the film is because it sounds lovely. And yeah, it's, it's all I wanted to do. I couldn't think of anything else. So I did my O&A levels. I mean, we moved to the UK and I did my own A-levels and then I did a diploma in like a secretarial course because I just didn't, I knew I wanted to do photography, but I didn't know that I could make a living from it. So I learned shorthand in English and German, which I certainly don't (laughs) use. Yeah, highly relevant today. (laughs) And that was for, that was meant to be for two years. After six months, I just thought, this is completely wrong. You know, I'm not, I don't want to learn to type right and do shorthand and all I want to do is photography. So I started really looking into it and then did a BTEC diploma in photography, which was two years. And then I had a choice to do a degree or not. And um, a friend of mine said, just move to London, work as, assist- as an assistant. So that's where I gained a lot of my experience. I worked as a freelancer to loads and loads of different photographers for five years. Um, and that's where I gained a lot of experience. So what sort of photography were you learning then? Was this just the basic? I was assisting many different kind of photographers from still life, fashion, advertising, editorial, car. I think I might have worked on a porn shoot once. (laughs) (laughs) Or was it a sex magazine? I think we'll come back to that, but that becomes a theme later on in your your work, doesn't it? (laughs) There There were fewer assistants around then. Certainly very few female assistants. So I felt I always had to kind of prove myself uh, technically and physically. So I just always made notes after the day of what I learned that day of how to light a set, how, not that I wanted to necessarily copy it, but what what did I take from that day? And I always carried equipment that was much heavier or more equipment than, than the guys were just to prove that women can do it. But yeah, it was it was it was fun. There was a lot of traveling. It was very hard work. So did you even in those early days have a feeling that you were going to go alone and have, do, do your go your own way? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I was I wasn't doing this just for fun. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, it was it, it was hard work and sure. very intense hours because you're the first one to arrive on the set and you're the last one to leave. And there's a lot of team making for everybody else and. You know, it's not all, it's not glamorous at all. But I knew, I I was assisting really good photographers and I was learning and I was making the right contacts with the right people. And that's really important too. It's just getting in the, it's just getting into that photography world. And, you know, being able to work with people who, for example, stylists or hair and makeup that I work with now because I met them years ago when I was an assistant or clients that I might have met through ad agencies and things like that. So at what point did you become aware of or express an interest in this fine art style that you developed in throughout your career? 
So the photographers I was assisting were mostly commercial photographers. And that's how I started. I won an award, quite a big award. It's the AOP, Association of Photographers Assistance Awards. And they always have a big special night. All the art buyers go to this event and agents as well. And then they, they look for young talent. So I got picked up by a German agent who got me an advertising commission within three months, traveling to Australia to shoot a cigarette campaign. And from then on, I slowly stopped assisting and started entering more the commercial world. So I was purely a, a commercial photographer at that point. I wasn't always busy because I always had quite a maybe unique or odd or whatever style you want to call it that, you know, often the creators wanted to work with me and the clients will go, well, does this really fit for our brand? So I was I wasn't one of the busy photographers. I, I, I've never been one of these busy photographers who shoot every week. I get booked for special projects. But in those days, I mean, now I get, people are really booking me for my style. But then, I guess I was also still developing a style. People would say, oh, we're booking you for this, but can you just make it look less cinematic and a little bit more lifestyle and more daylight and less flash lit? And I just started getting a little bit frustrated with what I was creating. I mean, commission work in the advertising work pays well. That's the plus side. And you're, you know, you're working with this whole production team and you're spending someone else's money. (laughs) But when it actually comes to it being creative, obviously you give 10 different photographers the same brief. You do come up with 10 different, completely different looks and styles. However, you are still the tool. You're playing to somebody else's tune as opposed to expressing your own creativity exactly and I started getting a little bit frustrated with that and I suddenly thought actually I want to shoot something for myself I mean that's why you're a photographer because you love taking pictures and taking pictures for somebody else is great but also it's important to take pictures for yourself and that's when I started my first project titled Teenage Stories where I photographed So this is back in 2005, I believe. Yes. And I photographed teenage girls in model villages. So they're like, they're giants. So if anybody Um, wants to look at this as we're we're talking about them, where can people find these, uh, this portfolio of work? This is on your website. It is. It's www.juliafullerton-batten.com. <laughs> That's easy for you to say. <laughs> what, you want to spell my name out? <laughs> no, I'm sure they'll find you if they just Google you. So just talk us through the teenage stories, because this, I think, is a little bit sort of reflective of you and your upbringing. Oh, definitely. It's it's like, it's my diary. <laughs> it's it's Every image has a meaning and it refers to my life. In fact, it was quite interesting because when I started shooting this project, which took about a year, year and up to two years, I didn't quite realize that I was, well, let's put it this way. I was going through therapy at the time because I had some hangups about things in the past. My parents got divorced when, okay, I was 16, but what was quite unusual with our family was my father got custody over us children. My brother was only five, my younger sister 13, and I had an older sister as well. My mother went off with a partner to Austria And my father, we went with our father to England and it all happened very, very quickly. So I was, I was struggling with that. I'm, I mean, I'm happy to be in England and how my life life (laughs) turned out. But yeah, it was, it was something I would, I'd just been struggling with and also something with the relationship in the past. 
So I was seeing a therapist once a week and started reflecting a lot. You know, they dig deep into your past. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I started reflecting on my life and my childhood. And I had a great childhood. And I started thinking of all these scenarios of situations we've been in. Just very simple stories. And I thought, I, I actually I want to start creating these stories. And so I did. I looked, I, I, I stumbled across a model village, a model villages where you go, they're dotted all around Europe. There's some in Canada, America, probably elsewhere in the world. And they normally relate to a historical place. I mean, normally they tell you stories. I mean, they're basically real looking buildings yeah. or... Yeah, um, the, the one I'm familiar with is yeah. um, I, where I used to go as a kid is in Beaconsfield in um, Buckinghamshire, I think it is. Yeah. And that's, um, it doesn't look anything like this i don't know where with the one in your this one is in babicum babicum okay it's one i'm not familiar with so all the pictures are shot here are they in in this model village no, no some are shot in brussels and tenerife okay. so i traveled for right. this to shoot this project so the theme of the project was just explain obviously looking back you're using some of your emotion and some of your experiences from your own upbringing in childhood and how is that reflected in the in the in the pictures we're looking at Okay, I'll tell you one scenario. So one is, actually, it's called Girls by Motorway. So when I traveled to school and back, parents gave me money to get the train, but I wanted to keep that money and decided to hitchhike and not tell my parents. So I used to hitchhike to school and back, sometimes on my own, sometimes with a friend. This was normal, you know, especially living in Germany, people were hitchhiking all the time. But what was a little bit unusual about this one situation was that a, bu- a, a man, a dri- male driver stopped his bus and let us come on the bus. And when we asked, when he asked where we wanted to be dropped off, he carried on driving and said, why don't we want to come home with him? His wife will cook us a lovely meal and kind of sped up and was driving quite a distance and I was really quite scared. I'd be terrified. Um, so how, how old were you? I was 14, 15 and it petrified me and I ended up just shouting at him and he stopped the bus and let us out. But what happens, what would have happened if, sure. you know, you can't help thinking about that. And yeah. maybe he was genuine and nice guy, but I think he had other ideas and I was, I, I never had shiked after that and I want to tell that story in my own way and a lot of the images do need describing I was going to ask that people who are looking at your images I mean either either in this collection or some of your other collections do they is it important for them to have the backstory as it were or can they look at them just purely for art and appreciate well, obviously they can look at them and appreciate them can they create their own stories from their own background as I, well I, I, I like people sometimes have to have their own interpretation of the image and I think it's more up to the viewer if they want to know more about the story or if they just look at the image and enjoy it for what it is. Very often I, I always have artist statements and there's always a story behind each image that people can read about. Also when it hangs in exhibitions as well. And then sometimes people choose to ignore them or, or read about them. I think it's up to the viewer. Yeah, totally up to each individual person. But when you look at this picture, for example, of uh, is this the same two two different girls in this picture? Is this, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Walking alongside this 
I don't know, was it Autobahn or it's supposed yeah. to be an Autobahn in, in Germany, I guess. Yeah, well, it's like a motorway. motorway yeah, this, here, yeah. This, this is relating to the do, do you hitchhiking. See, do you see yourself in the picture here? I mean, yes, not, not absolutely. physically, but you can imagine yeah. yourself in the picture, and that takes you back to that moment of yeah. fear in your in your in your childhood. Yeah. So each individual image tells a story. There's one which really life. spooked me, which was a girl laying alongside. I think she had a bike, come off a bike, and was laying splayed out as oh, if yes. she'd fallen off a bike in a bike horribly accident. contorted way. I don't know if you can just... Yeah, bike accident. Yeah. So I, I tend to exaggerate my stories because I feel we are these days, especially bombarded with imagery every day. Yeah. We're seeing images. But not like this. I just think, how do you stand out as... A photographer, not necessarily an art photographer. Yes. How do you stand out as a photographer? I so I tend to exaggerate. Not all of the images, but this one's particularly. So we were on holiday in Germany, an island in Germany called Borkum, and it's somewhere where you go and you take your bike. You don't actually there are no cars, and you cycle along. And one day, my sister just fell off her bike. It's as simple as that. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and but I mean, she didn't have a big accident. It, I mean, she her knees were bleeding, and that. And, and yet she was struggling. The girl who's fallen off her bike here, to me, at first first impression, looks like she's had a ma- major traumatic sort of yeah. car crash. Looks, yeah, she, she looks distorted. Yeah, yeah, she looks totally distorted. Nearly, I mean, do- nearly no, doll-like. It's, it's not blood and guts, but she does no. look like... It's the sort of Im- image you'd get in a film of someone had fallen off a high-rise building and you see their body at the bottom with yeah. it, without the blood and guts. You know, their head like one way, their things. limbs twisted mm. the other way. And I, I found it quite... It made me sort of shiver a bit because it, mm. it's obviously a young girl next to... Um, uh, again, a motorway sort of mm-hmm. scenario come, coming off her bike, and it's quite it's quite scary. Yeah, but at the same time, to me, she looks a bit doll-like. And funny enough, this is one of the most popular images that people have bought at, to hang on their walls. From this collection? From this collection. This one, yeah. Isn't and, that strange? I wonder why that is. You know, they're looking you... at this, you know, and they're, they're large. They're large images that they look at every day. I wonder why someone would want to hang a picture of someone... But you know what? I I ask that about a a lot of images that I see. You know, I go to art fairs. There's Perry Photo and we've got Photo London. I don't know if you've ever been. It's in Somerset House. It's in May. It's quite soon. You should go. It's great. And very often I look at artwork on the walls and some of them are seriously disturbing. A lot of them are, you know, from war or, you know, real situations so, i mean Cereal, is, is it your whatever. intention to be disturbing because obviously as some of the other collections you've done and we'll talk about you know feral children and uh, the act as well which is disturbing <laughs> one extreme they're, to another one extreme to another they're, <laughs> yeah. they're, they're disturbing in completely contrasting ways mm. shocking maybe mm. probably more than disturbing but when you choose a project how, how does that come to you do, do you do you think of something that's happened in your life or something that's happening around the world and you think you know i've got i've got a show this to the world i've got to put my own spin on this and get this out there well that's us going on to feral children then yeah yeah i mean when i first started it was all about my life and my childhood growing up as a teenager relationship there's mothers and daughters which is a relationship between my mother and myself or my sisters with our mom or my mother and her mom was that particularly hard for you to do that one mothers and daughters given the relationship you had with your mother and the, the separation. And yeah, I mean, we're, well, we're still, inc- I mean, we're really good friends and it's not like she's died. So, yeah, I mean, some of it was hard. There's one called The Divorce where I'm recreate the scene. The mother is comforting the daughter, which is basically me, basically saying it's okay and I'll be visiting you. 
yeah, so it it was it was difficult. Yeah, but not difficult in a way of things that are happening in the world right now. No, I just, I, I'm just aware, <laughs> you, know, you know, to put in context. We we have a daughter, and I know the relationship between a mother and a daughter is not always, you know, 100 percent all of the time. Yeah. They have their moments, mothers and daughters. They can yeah. be, they can be, and often is friction there. Mm. And that, I think you captured that beautifully. One of the things I did notice in some of the the images of a lot of the characters who in, you portray. They, I don't know if it's the right word, they're expressionless. They have like a deadpan look on them. And it's almost as if you, the viewer has to sort of get, get the feeling from, from the character rather than you're not telling the, the viewer what to look at mm. or how to get the feeling out of it. It's not that I'm a sad person. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't like photographing people who are laughing because it can look quite, to me, more contrived and it can be more on the cheesy side. Yes. I like it when people are more in thought and yes. daydreaming. Thoughtful, and, I would say more yeah, than that. Yeah, I- I- exactly. Yes. Thoughtful yes. and daydreaming. Because, I mean, the earlier work, it's it's very much one person in an image. Most of the time, if you're on your by yourself, you tend to have that kind of sl- slightly, I don't know if it's expressionless, but... You There's know, an you intensity to, to, yeah. to them. So when you're looking at, as a viewer, looking at the images, you think, well, I wonder what's going through their mind. You know, what are they, what are they thinking? So you've, mm. you've got to do some, some work yourself, which, which, which is interesting because you, you can't instantly see that they're happy or they're sad, but you have to look at the whole, whole thing in context. Yeah. And I, I think that's, a, it's fascinating. I think it's really clever. And it's a bit different in my project, Awkward, which is about the awkward teenagers, where the, the, the teenagers look actually incredibly uncomfortable. Yes. And it's that kind of awkward teenage age. So that was like the boys and the girls t- together, understanding exactly. that coming to terms with their own sexuality and the difficulty around, yeah. you know, what do we do next sort of thing you yeah. know, when they're in the yeah. same room together. It's avoiding eye contact. It's yes. kind of looking down or looking to the side and yeah, slightly shifty. just being very, un- <laughs> very, very uncomfortable. Yes. So, I, yeah, I think each project is different. I don't think they're all, you know, emotionless at all. I think they're probably... Thoughtful. Yeah, thoughtful, I think, is probably the yeah. better way of describing it. I mean, the act is quite different because the women are performing, so that's cer- certainly not as thoughtful. <laughs> so, yeah, let's let's talk about the act, because this is, this is obviously, um, we're in an adult phase now of uh, looking at the, the sex industry, I mm-hmm. believe. Mm-hmm. So how did you, how did you, I'm going to ask you how you got involved in the sex industry. What was your thought process in, in developing this project? Well, I wanted to show women who are involved in the sex industry from a different point of view and I guess that's more a female point of view rather than a male point of view I think a lot of male photographers have photographed strippers and women who work in the porn business but I wanted to show it in a more positive light so these women are they come from all different backgrounds but most of them are well educated and they've chosen this career path that they want to show their body in whichever way it depends who's performing what because we've got porn stars uh, lap dancer uh, dominatrix so we've got 12 to 15 different kind of professions um, one is a transsexual and show it in a more positive light rather than oh no poor poor women and look what, what they're doing with themselves so they when they commit to this project it's something that they want to also show the world that they're happy with what they're doing and they shouldn't be looked down upon. Mm. You certainly, there was certainly no sense of shame on their part from what they were doing, um, <laughs> which is fine because it's, it's an, entirely their their choice. In fact, quite the opposite of shame. They were, they were in many respects, reading the backstories that came with each picture. They were 
quite well, proud of what they were doing and and almost see see it as an art form in itself. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the most explicit one is yes, Chessie K. Chessie K, not a, not a character I'm familiar with. No, <laughs> until I look. I mean, your... <laughs> she she is practically. I mean, she's naked. She does look um, like a blow up a doll. Blow up doll. Yeah. And she has, bl- she has blow up boobs. <laughs> she has blow up boobs yeah. and fake mouth. And she's proud. She's, her legs are wide open and you can just see, see everything. It's, yeah. it's very, it's in your face. My grandma would say you could see what she had for breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's in your face. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it's not close up. And these women are created on stage sets. So I designed and created these theatrical sets according to each person's career. So you get an understanding of what they do, the the theme, and, you know, obviously you've got dominatrix, you've got... Um, Here's a webcam girl. A webcam girl. So she's sitting, sitting in front of her screen, her hands between her legs, and she's wearing a corset, but her, her breasts are out, and she's reacting to, to, to the camera on, on the laptop. Yeah. Which is what she, what she does, and so when I actually met these girls, it was like an interview. I, I, I my background is a bit old fashioned. I've had very few partners. I married the man I love. Then we had children. It's that kind of traditional mm. kind of normal life, and I found these women interesting and intriguing. Shocking. And, um, shocking. I mean, we all know this goes on, but when you come face to face with these people, how does that? I'm I'm very open-minded. I think the one that I found because these two, for example, were I mean they're all mm. very blunt and frank with what they do and how they do it and the reasons for doing mm. it. They they they've no Chloe compulsion. and Ella who are live in slaves. So they Ella is the dominatrix to Chloe. So Chloe's a slave to Ella, and then they're both a slave to another woman who they live with. And she, that's their lifestyle. Mm. It's not making a living like that. They're both porn stars. And they've chosen this lifestyle. So their dominatrix, who they live with, will decide that she wants to feed them from the floor, like dogs. Or she wants them to sleep at the end of her bed, or even in a coffin. Not necessarily a coffin, but like a trunk. And I'm not going to go into detail. No, no. But m- sexual yeah. things that are happening which involves electricity and all sorts of sure. oddness. I found that, yeah, quite intriguing and, oh, Hard. Yeah. And I put them in chains. On, you know, they're chained up on the set. And they're, I think she, she says a number, like five, and they have a number and then they have to bow down to her. They have to sort of, if they're standing, they have to drop to their knees. Okay, so there's different and commands. Put, exactly. Yeah. Put their hands on their lap and put their head down. It's, but it's what they want to do. It's their choice. Quite bizarre. You, but, you know, as long as everybody's happy and no one... If it's consensual and they're happy and they're yeah. not breaking the law, then yeah. good luck to them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you design the sets yourself or you have a set designer or you say this is what I want it to look so like? I, I work very closely with a set builder uh-huh. and then I, I i would say that i designed them yes i chose how i wanted to create the sets i, I gave him loads of references he was better at drawing than i am so he in the end drew them and i gave him the material that i wanted i chose i, I got my own wallpaper a lot of it was i love vintage so um, i got a lot of vintage wallpaper old bedding old beds um, i hired the props i got a, a lovely girl who went and photographed every single prop hire in London. And then I chose which ones we were going to 
have on set. It was it was a big. All these art projects take at least a year to create. From the process, from as conception in, through to exactly because a lot of it is thinking of the idea. That's that's the first stage. What am I going to shoot? And I've never had a writer's block, so to speak. I'm quite lucky. You know, when I finish a project, I, I often say to my husband, right, I'm going to have a break. I'm just going to do nothing. And then two weeks later, oh, I've got this brilliant idea. Yes. <laughs> or I've read about something and that's it. I'm going to do it. And once I, once I have an idea, that's it. I'm off. I'm so focused. It's all I want to do. And I, work, I mean, I work from home. I have kids. When they're back, when they go to bed at night, I'm I'm back in my office. <laughs> so all the all, all the all the creative juices are at home, and yeah. presumably I don't know what you use is it you'll make notes freehand. You use a computer to design your sets, or how how does it how does it manifest itself before you go to? I have big A4 notebooks, and I just jot down my ideas. Right, and these notebooks travel with me everywhere. Like if I if my son's singing, if he's got singing lessons in the choir. I'll go there and listen for the hour. And, and, and actually, that's when I get a lot of ideas, when, when, when all these children are singing and it's yeah. just their voices. How old are your kids? Eight and ten, two and boys. Have they seen all your work, including yeah. the action? Yeah. yeah, so you're quite yeah. open about everything. Yeah, yeah very open-minded. Yeah. What do they think of it? They think it's interesting, yeah. especially <laughs> the woman who's got something dangling between her legs. <laughs> Yes. They didn't know that was the possible. transgender but, uh, yes. lady. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, it involved quite a lot of explaining. But no, I I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't show them porn films. No. But so I'm not just... hiding these images. My husband's okay with them, Fine. seeing them. Yeah. So it takes a year from conception through to, you know, getting the whole collection together and publishing them. Do you have an end game where you think, I'm going to show these, they're going to be in a gallery, mm. they're going to be sold, this is going to be a book? I mean, I think this was turned into a book, wasn't it, ultimately? Well, I'm working on a project now which is a slightly different approach than how I've approached, I'd say, nearly all of my other projects. So I will spend, really, the whole year thinking of the idea from concept and then working on each individual image, going and looking at locations or if there's sets involved, all the production that goes with it, casting, and start putting everything together. And then I'll spend a really intense week shooting all of it and believe me it's intense because my whole year of trying to create these images comes down to this one week and that's when I hire in a lot of assistants a big team of people that I know I can trust and we tend to have really long shoot days because don't forget I'm, f- I'm funding this all myself that's what I do yeah this is yeah. not cheap and I mean I'm, I'm lucky because I have people who want to work with me and they, they want to do it for either the experience and for their portfolios. So hair and makeup, styling, I don't have to pay. But I, I believe, you know, if you're photographing a, a model or a person, they should get paid and you've got to pay sets, the set builder, the studio, Where, where was this studio for the act? There was a studio in Essex. It was a huge, enormous sound stage. And because I wanted to show that they were our sets... We put them on platforms and you see the studio beyond that. And I wanted a nice looking black studio. I mean, you can't see it so well on, on my on this laptop here. But when they're created as large prints and they're, every detail is, you can see every single detail. And every single detail is important to me. And it's that detail that really just adds to the story. So how much work is involved after the shoot in terms of the editing and... I try not, I mean, I always have professional, 
high-end retouchers working on the images. I certainly don't do that myself. I try and not heavily retouch them. Because so pretty I, much what you've shot on the day is what, what we're seeing now. Yeah. I mean, I might have had, a li- had to put a light in shot because I had to bring the light closer to the woman for a certain reason. Maybe... I preferred, even though I shot the two women at the same time, maybe I preferred the look of another woman and therefore replaced her with the, to be with that woman. So there are things that get changed and moved if something's a bit too bright or too dark. But yeah, generally, most of it is done. I'd, yeah, most of it is certainly done in camera. Yeah. What's been the, the feedback on this collection, the act? Very mixed. Yes. As you can imagine. Uh-huh. Love it. It's like Marmite, love or hate. Okay. <laughs> so I got a book published, a very limited edition book, only 300 copies. And I was trying to find a writer in our profession to write the foreword for it. And it took me a while. But in the end, I got the um, Italian editor from Italian Vogue to write it. So that, that, that is what I was aiming for. Elevate it. Yeah. 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 And take it seriously. Whereas some women turn it down. Yeah, it's it's got it's got a mixed review. So where where can this be seen? Is it just be seen online? Has it been exhibited in a gallery, or is it just if people want to look at it, they just go online and check it out on your website? At the moment, it's online. It's going to be in a gallery in Milan. I don't know when. Mm, okay. Yeah, I've just printed up a few images, but I don't know when when the show is. So moving on from um, the sex industry, which is uh, in its many and varied forms. <laughs> <laughs> you, you touched earlier on feral children, which is not mm. not um, a widely reported subject, or if it is widely reported, it's probably it's, it's fairly niche. What sparked your interest in this this topic? So I read a book by a woman called Marina Chapman, called A Girl with No Name, and she was one of the feral children. She was born and lived in Colombia. Uh, when she was about five years old, she was kidnapped, drugged, and thrown into the jungle. And she survived there at that young, tender age for three, four years until she was discovered by hunters. And she survived by copying the behavior of capuchin monkeys, copying what they were eating and where they were getting water from. And I just found her, I mean, her, her, her life goes on and on. It goes, she was then discovered by these hunters who then took her to a brothel where she worked as a slave. Then they wanted to make her into a prostitute when she had, you know, she came to that ripe age. She ran away. She worked. She lived on the streets, and she ended up with a mafia family. And in the end, she finds a way to Bradford in of the all UK. Places. She's gets married and has two children and lives a completely normal life. And I believe you've met her now, haven't you? As well, I have met yeah, her. Yeah. yeah, Vice Media. Um, well, let's put it this way: when this project got released, it's the opposite actually of the act. I had so many emails coming in and people contacting me for interviews. I spoke live on BBC and people wanted, were just intrigued by all of these stories. And I was, I think for two weeks nonstop, I was just doing interview after interview. And one of them was actually meeting Marina Chapman, which was incredible because she was the lady who started the project. And I got very, very deeply involved with this project and could you believe how many feral children's stories there were out there i mean because your collection of real life stories is quite incredible from all all around the world really isn't it that's true i mean some some of these 
is, I suppose, the only way you could describe it as, as deliberate abuse of children. Well, the, yes. I mean, there's there's different feral... I'm showing feral children in different ways. One is where, a little bit like Marina, they end up, they end up being, for some reason or another, either they run away or... Yeah, most a lot of them have run away. I guess with Marina, she's the the rare one that was actually thrown into the jungle. They 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 are by all of them are by themselves, and with animals, and and the others who are kind of more abused at home, and they're treated like animals. For example, Sujit Kumar, called the Chicken Boy, was discovered in 1978 in Fiji. He preferred living in a chicken coop than actually being with his family who mistreated him and totally treated him like an animal and th- what happens is with these children because they they're not developing properly they're not being spoken to is that they don't learn to speak the language at all and then they also copy the behavior of the animals so he would actually have claw like hands and behave like a chicken so he's not walking upright he's crouched and pecking along like chickens and you can actually i mean some of them i'm not 100% sure if these stories actually really happen because some of them are dating so far back i don't have proof like yes, kamala and amala in india 1920 so we're just relying on historical storytelling Exactly. There's no hard factual proof. But the one where you can actually see video footages is of Oksana Malaya in Ukraine, who was discovered in 1991. And she lived in the kennels with with wild dogs. I mean, they were wild. I mean, they, they still belonged to somebody, but they were treated in a wild way. And you can actually see her barking and lapping water like a dog. I think we've got our own menagerie out here as well. Oh, my. Talking about feral... (laughs) Feral children. We've got feral cats out here. (laughs) (laughs) How about that for timing? (laughs) That's just background effects. (laughs) It's all real, folks. (laughs) (laughs) All happens in Chiswick. (laughs) Yeah, wild Chiswick. So this this girl here was how old when she was found? She was just a young girl. She was... I think she was about 14... So she was walking, I mean, she's a teenager. crawling around on her hands and knees, howling yeah. and barking. And as you say, some of these children actually take on the characteristics of the animals that they're they're living with. Some of them, their their bones take different shapes, and their yeah. teeth get sharper. Yeah, and they they actually grow like a they become hirsute and go you know, fur almost, don't they? Because they're they're living out in the wild. Yeah, and and also they're um, they're malnourished, and I think that's what happens with anorex. You know, yes, you, get, you can get hairy. People yeah. can get very yeah. hairy because yeah. your hormones yeah. suddenly take over. Yeah, I don't understand the mechanics of it, but I think your mm. your testosterone levels go through the roof mm. or something like that. But these are staggering stories of of they're shocking, absolute they're, shocking yeah, brutality shocking. and abuse by yeah. by parents and carers is just unbelievable. And what's really scary about this is. These are the ones that are recorded, and yes. th- these are the ones that are found. But imagine how many scenarios there are of ones that haven't been found, and then later, you know, people might stumble across their bones somewhere. 
Well, every it's, it's couple really of years, shocking. you see on the news another child pulled from a basement or a hidden oh, room in a yeah. in a bungalow or a dungeon in someone's yeah. house. Yeah, you know, who's been abused and repeatedly raped by their stepfather, or whatever, yeah. for twenty yeah. years. And then they have their own children. Yeah, their own children. It is just oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I mean, it is shocking. So this was very disturbing. This must have been hard for you to very to do. hard. Yeah. I mean. You know, working on teenage stories and, you know, mothers and daughters that, you know, you're digging in the past. But this is proper disturbing stuff. And, you know, it's hard, let alone being a parent. But I think also just being a human being, just the comprehension of actually what was going on. And the one that actually disturbed me, I've got to say, the, the one that really did disturb me the most, which is has been in the news and it's horrific, is genie yes and i actually made a note of this one and it was Mm. top of my list for disturbance factor and what's really disturbing with her is she had no comfort with animals even can you just explain yeah so genie was at home she had a normal brother who went to school which country is this in oh this sorry this is in america okay she was discovered in 1970 um living in america she was restrained in her bedroom a very simple room that it had a tiny window with a little bit of light creeping through and she was restrained to a potty chair during the day and to a cot at night. So and she that's was literally where she, tied down to a, a toilet yeah. stroke pot yeah. during the day and tied to a cot in the evening. And that's where she sat in an empty by room. herself day and night. I, actually, I could just cry about it because it's, it's just... It beggars belief. And when they found her, I believe she, she, could be, she couldn't stand up, could she, because of the way she'd been forced yeah. to sit and squat for yeah. most of her young life. And <laughs> she was shoved. She was shoved boiled eggs into her mouth. And her dad beat her up on a regular basis. I think she was slightly... There was something... She didn't have Down syndrome, but there was something odd about her and he couldn't accept that, apparently. And therefore, you know, the brother was fine. He would just go to normal school. But no genie. She uh, had to be, no one must see genie. How was she found eventually? Do you, do you recall? I think, as far as I remember, I think for some reason, social care came over. Maybe the neighbors were talking or something, but there were visitors and then they saw through a very, you know, the door was slightly ajar and they, they saw her sitting there. So this collection is all of chil- feral children and these are all, presumably you're using real actors and actresses yes who are themselves children to create recreate the scenarios i was very happy to find this girl how do you how did you feel uh, about putting these kids and how do they feel about being put in this well um, mock-up scenarios i work from home i i I have an office at home i don't have a studio so first i do a big brief why it goes out there through casting directors and it goes everywhere and then people are sending in their images of all these kids and bit by bit, I am collecting these images, and then I'm thinking, okay, this girl is great for Jeannie. She's, she has to be. They have to be skinny. They have to have like big eyes and have good expressions. And this girl was just perfect for Jeannie, for example. Um, and they had to also have be from the right country as well, because you know they're from all different ethnicities. And then I would meet them, and they know about this project, so I'm already explaining in my brief what I want to achieve. Then they would come to the house, obviously with their parents, and I'm taking pictures, and then I'm showing them images of anything that I could show them that relate to any of the stories, and telling them what I am actually recreating. So this girl needs to sit on a potty, and she will be in this scenario, and people are agreeing to it because 
their children are actors and they're pr- also they're proud to be, be part of this project. And why shouldn't they be? The only problem I had, and this is something that I feel uncomfortable about, but it's I'm okay to admit it, is when it actually came down to dirtying them up, putting bruises on them, putting them in clothes that are really ragged and little clothes, so they're not very covered, but they've got everything covered. Most of the children were very upset and uncomfortable and suddenly decided they didn't want to do it when we were actually on set. And the girl that was actually recreating Marina Chapman, who's where I shot in Puzzlewood in Wales. It's an amazing, exotic-looking little part of Wales that is covered in moss over all the trees and rocks and... It's it's quite and it's got all the roots coming out. I mean, they 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 filmed Star Wars there, and we had real monkeys on set, who are which are animal trained monkeys. So they're on a little leash, and I asked the animal trainer. So I really need this monkey to be digging around in her hair for you know fleas, worms, what not worms, sorry, fleas. <laughs> <laughs> like monkeys do to each other, and yeah, that's yeah. what happened De-louse to Marina. Each other. Yeah. That's what happened to Marina in real life. And I like to I like to have this as a shot. What can we do? She said, Well, we have to put worms in her hair. I went, Okay, go for it. Just don't tell her. So this monkey sits on this girl's shoulder and it's digging for worms like one little worm in her hair but it, unfortunately the worm dropped out of her hair and and she screamed and yeah <laughs> yeah so i promised we wouldn't do that again no more worms <laughs> and and i got a great shot but i didn't use it in the end i got a great shot of her climbing the tree tree branches uh, which have collapsed along with all with the other monkeys and it's i, I think it's a very powerful image yeah yeah it's and she's behaving like a monkey herself the way she's clamoring these moss, mossy trees, tree trunks. Yeah, so I do, you know, that, but that's as far as I would go uh, as making someone uncomfortable. I, was, I, I felt I was pushing my limits there. I mean, we're often in, I mean, we're often in situations where most of the time the assistants are very uncomfortable <laughs> because, you know, lunch is delayed. We've got long working hours. It could be very cold. We can be in a, a very uncomfortable environment. I mean, I'm doing a shoot along recreating stories along the River Thames right now. And we found ourselves, we, we were doing this shoot um, along the estuary. There's an amazing building called the Grain Tower. But it's a, it's a mall walk, actually, at low tide into the sea, basically, or the estuary, which is part River Thames and you already parts River Thames water and seawater. And these guys have to carry up and down about 15 different fla- 15 flashheads and all you know tons of equipment smoke machine tripods and you got to make sure um, you get the tides right oh absolutely <laughs> oh yeah i'm an expert on tides now <laughs> so we find ourselves in wheelchair in, in deep water and we're we're actually standing in our in our long waders that go up to our chest in deep water and all the lights are in the water so walking about is dangerous and the whole thing is actually a little bit Sorry, walking about's not dangerous, but you know you don't want these flashheads to fall in the water. So everything has to happen very slowly and carefully. But so I am. It must be I'm, very exciting, though. And, oh yeah. Apart from, and challenging as well, of course. At it's the same super time, cha- super challenging. Yeah. But I love it. Yeah. It's great fun. Well, you can see you love it from from your work. You can see just the buzz you you get from it, and the the imagery is just incredible. But I've got to say, I I was doing a shoot at low tide yesterday. Um, by Kew Bridge in London 
uh, I do sometimes ask myself, oh my, why, why, why do I put myself through such difficulty? I mean, this shoot itself, it's re, it's, well, I mean, I'll, I'll tell the story. And so it's called the Women's Bridge. In World War Two. when men went out to war, the women had to come in and do all the labor work. And many women had to finish building Waterloo Bridge. And this only really, it, it's, it's, it's called the forgotten women because pe many people don't know about this. There are two women who ha are still alive. They're in their 90s. But it was until three years ago, it, it's through the, the Thames Festival, a woman stumbled upon it and said, well, where are, are all the historical images? And for, they weren't on the internet. So she found them through libraries and brought the story alive again. And I thought, my God, I've, I've got to create this. So I had 20 models or actresses dressed in overalls, which are actually lying in my garden right now because I had to wash them this morning. Right. <laughs> and I thought it was just your, uh, your normal weekly wash. Yeah. <laughs> no, this is from the set yesterday. And many props. And we're going down at Foreshore and we're, you know, eight, eight guys had to carry this really heavy, I don't know what you call it. It's like a big water unit thing, but it's... Like an urn? I, I don't know the name for it. It's a great big, huge, heavy, in, incredibly heavy prop. And the tides, you know, we're behind time. The tide's coming in and we've all, got all these RSJs lying around. I mean, great big, heavy things. Uh, a woman, two women are looking like they're welding because that's what the women did. And we've got to shoot this thing. And it's bright, sunny daylight, which I don't want. I would have preferred a rainy day because it's more dramatic. Everybody's like, oh, you're so lucky. You've got a lovely, rainy, uh, sunny day. I'm like, no. No, you wanted a bit more mood. Yeah, to exactly. Yeah. So I do question why I, I, you know, I'm sure I get a few more grey hairs on every shoot. <laughs> and I have sleepless nights and... Uh, but it must be very thoroughly, thoroughly rewarding to see what, what you've achieved in the end product when you finish the project. It's incredibly rewarding, especially when it's hanging in an amazing gallery space. I had a big show in Photographiska in Stockholm, which is a big museum, and... I had the whole floor and it was, we had a special, you know, you have these special opening nights and I give talks and I get flown to amazing places. I'm going to Istanbul at the end of this week. I've been to Korea and Tokyo and you, you get flown to these amazing places to show your work hanging, hanging on gallery spaces. Yeah, that must it's, be an absolute joy for you. It, it is. Yeah. It is. It, it all, it all sort of pays off. <laughs> Yeah. So what are you? So you're working on that at the moment, and that's um, the old Father Thames project, I think. Correct. You're calling yeah. It? Yeah. So I'm approaching this in a different way because, obviously, because of the I can't shoot the whole project in three four days because we're very tie dependent, and also I want to show it at different seasons as well. So I'm the way I'm creating this is I'm producing it, shooting it, producing, shooting. So it's much more staggered, and this project seems to be taking longer. And don't know taking more time and it's seems to be a bigger production than all of the other shoots do you map out each individual shoot in advance so you know what the, the whole project is going to comprise you know 15 or a dozen different this items? one not yes so all the others go. yes i know i'm going to create so many different images in that project this one i'm kind of stumbling along new stories as i'm going along and I keep saying this is the last one. <laughs> yeah. Well, the Thames, um, as you know, <laughs> is going to throw up many, many 
different amazing stories. stories right from hundreds and thousands of years ago right up to present day. So, you, Did you know the River Thames froze and people I, used to I, have I did indeed, yeah. stalls and parties I on did it? I and go skating on it, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, incredible. So... You've got any number of stories you can you can recreate here. I could I could shoot I could shoot this project for the rest of my life to be honest. You probably could. And right now I'm quite happy just discovering the River Thames. Yeah. And you and, and I both know somebody who's got lots of stories to tell about the River Thames. Oh yes. <laughs> Jason. Jason, yeah, who's been on the podcast previously. So so that's really ex- a really exciting project. I just wanted to touch on just one other one you've done which which fascinated me was was your project I think you called it Blind. Yes. Um not least because it's obviously all about people who are partially sighted or have sight deformities or are completely blind from birth or develop blindness as they went on. It touched the nerve with me, literally and metaphorically, I guess, because I had a footballing injury as a kid and I ended up in hospital with a partially detached retina. Ooh. And fortunately, my sight was saved in the one eye. Um, oh, wow. And I've got pretty, I'm pretty short-sighted in both eyes. So oh. when I looked at this... It doesn't show... I mean, what I mean, <laughs> I mean, it doesn't look no. like you had a problem with the eye or no, yeah, no, no. I mean, it, it's you wouldn't it's know. Been... It's it, it's you know, it's the retina, it's the back of yeah. the eye, and it, it's, yeah. it's it's healed. I I can see funny wavy things, and I get you know floaters, oh. and I, there is a blind spot, but it's in an area where you can't. I'm not aware of it anymore, mm. so it's not it's not a major issue, and it doesn't stop me living a normal life. But looking at these images, it just makes you realise how because what you yeah. do is. 100% visual obviously mm, and mm. even trying to portray this on the podcast as we're trying to do here is not easy um, but looking at these pictures of blind and semi-blind and partially sighted people I just found really quite moving yeah I don't know how it was for you to sort of put this project together it was a fascinating project because I- I'm funny about I'm funny about sight and now I need reading glasses and Apparently, as everybody gets older, you everybody will need glasses, certain glasses. At, and longer arms. Yeah. Well, long distance, long distance or short distance. Yeah. And my father-in-law was going blind. And each time I went to visit him, I could tell he was going more and more blind. He started just the way he looked through me rather than at me. I could tell he's he he can hardly see me. He can't see, he can't see my expressions. He can't he can maybe he can see a shape, a form, and something moving, but he can't he can't see me anymore. And I just suddenly had this slight panic attack or panicky feeling of what will happen if that happens to me. Well, how will I cope with that? I thought, oh my god, that's my next project: photographing blind people and interviewing them as well. I don't know if you've seen the interviews. I haven't so seen the interviews. I've read some of the uh, statements, but I haven't heard any of the the interviews themselves. It was it was just it's fascinating. Mm. I tell you what was the most fascinating thing is all these people became blind, either born blind or became blind later in life, for certain reasons, but they all had such a positive attitude to life, like life goes on, and I think it's a bit like if you lose a limb or you know you lose something. You just carry on. You carry on with life. And they all of them had such a positive outlook. None of them were really, oh, my God, this is It was so was that whether they, very dramatic. Did you find that consistent across those who were born blind and those who had lost their sight gradually? There was still a positive outlook? Or- well, I asked one question to everybody. Do you think it's better to be born blind and therefore 
you have no idea what anything looks like? Or is it better you saw something, you've seen something, and therefore when you do become blind, you then have that imagery in your head and therefore you feel robbed because you might feel robbed because it's not there anymore, but you've got it in your head. But it didn't matter. Those person those people who were born blind said they've got the images in their head anyway. So they have they they dream like we do. And they have images. So they were grateful for having but, had that experience. Yeah, but how do you describe what tea looks like? What a cup, you know, what a cup looks like? What? How do you describe green? How do you describe a color? But they somehow, they, they have their own vision in, in their head. And I found that absolutely fascinating. And those who had become blind later, for whatever reason, and I do must say, I've learned that everybody must go and see an optician every year, from a very young age, by the way. Okay, I've said it. <laughs> um, <laughs> Health warning. Th- th- they feel that because they saw that they're grateful that they, they... So everybody had a positive attitude. One lady who whose story was the most heartbreaking was Diana. And she had a car... I, she had a motorbike accident, quite a bad motorbike accident with her partner. They gave her penicillin and... She had a bad allergic reaction to penicillin. In the end, I don't know how this happens, it nearly dissolved her eyes. She had many operations. In the end, she had both eyes removed. So she has replacement uh, eyes. They're like marbles. And they look, look quite real. I mean, they move about. But she sees black, pure blackness, because many people can see light and shapes she sees nothing absolutely nothing and when i actually interviewed her she was her i mean she had tears she could cry i mean i cried with her it was her story was very tough very very hard but she got divorced she wasn't happy in her marriage uh she had she has children she i mean she thought of committing suicide many times but she met another man she had children she's living living life but she takes his eyes out at night i put some back yeah one of the things i what struck me you gave your models the opportunity to select i think their their what do you call it their backdrop the scene the way you, yeah the, where they want where they where, were the positioning of where they were yeah. what what i wanted rather than me telling them where they're going to be photographed because i didn't just want to photograph them in a studio i asked them what do they what do they love what do, what do they relate to where would they like to be <laughs> nearly all of them sit on a beach because they love feel they love the the breeze that they love or the noise of the waves the yeah. waves the sand on their feet when they're walking they love the the the, the smell of, of 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 the sea so okay give me different ideas so everybody told me different ideas now this lady Diane loves horse riding and she goes horse riding and I went to photograph a path where she rides. Another guy, Richard, sorry, Richard. Richard, He loves tandem cycling on the back of a bike with someone else steering in Farnham. So I photographed that background for him. So everybody chose different backgrounds. And this is actually the first time where, you know, going back to your first question about retouching and doing effects later, I photographed the backgrounds first separately without them as well so I went off on my own and photographed the backgrounds 
then I recreated the lighting in the studio. So they weren't physically present on the beach or yeah, in the forest? Or, exactly. Right, okay. They were shot in the studio. And, and I kind of wanted to do that because there's an oddness to the images because the background is focused and they're in focus. And normally your eye would naturally, it would be, if you focus on them, they would be out of, the background would be out of focus. But I quite like that. How do they feel about the fact you're creating a photographic image of them, and, they uh, uh, but they can never see it? Mm. What was their reaction well, to that? They said they loved the experience. Yeah. I mean, we had a hair and makeup artist. We had a stylist. I mean, I, I don't rely on people to bring their own clothes. Every item is still very carefully considered. So it's still my style of photography. So they, they had a special day out in a studio and they loved the experience. And they also have images to give to their friends and family. And they got paid. You know, everybody gets paid. Yeah, always helps. So it was, you know, being photographed by a photographer is an experience for them. That was, I think, one of my, my one of my favorite collections of yours. I think they're all amazing. I think that they're all incredible. And I would recommend anybody and everybody to uh, have a look at your work. Uh, I know you've got some work which is permanently, I think, exhibited at the National Portrait Gallery as well. I think it's a different style of work. It's in the permanent collection. In the permanent but, collection. So you don't actually, it's not visible. I was commissioned by the National Portrait Gallery and okay. I had a show there that that hung for six months, but you can't see it. You can't see it, no. but you can see it online if you yes. if you want to have a look at yeah. it. So just a couple of final questions before we before we wrap up. What does it take to be a good photographer to do the work that you do? What differentiates you from other people in your in your niche? I mean, you've you've won. I can't even. I've got twelve pages here of awards. I think you've won <laughs> awards all you know all over the world over many years. So there, there's obviously something that sets you apart and elevates you to to a different level. What what is it that is it the passion? Is it the skill? Is it your determination to see? It, I think it's a combination of all of you're saying. You're saying yeah. the words. It's yeah. a it's a combination of many things. But I think the most important thing is to believe in what you want to create. Believe in yourself and what you want to do, because I think there's a lot of photographers out there who have amazing ideas who don't finish it or don't even start it. And if you've got an idea, it's not enough, really. I think my work is probably different to many other photographers in a way that it's it's very cinematic and it's storytelling. I nearly say it's like taking a split second from a film. It's something that's either happened before or after an event. And I guess also I love lighting. I, can, I think you can take a very mundane situation or a normal day and create, I mean, photography is all about light after all, and create an amazing look with adding actually art. It is artificial at the end of it. It's artificial lighting. And even when I shoot outdoors, I will use some of the natural ambience, but then enhance it with my own lighting and that's something that I like to play with so I describe the work as very cinematic and it's quite staged it is staged but there's a degree of sort of naturalness and beauty about the staging they're very real and very and surreal and in surreal a way, yeah, at the same time surreal there's extreme clarity to some of the images and yet there's the edges are blurred as well somewhat so it's very strange to look at these at these images because you you get all different feel I get a sense of hope looking at looking at your collection, looking at 
all of them really from the from the blind to the the the, the growing up of the the children and the, the the girls going through their adolescence even the sex workers i i think there's a lot, a lot of hope that's nice to hear well i think i think it's positive i don't get a negative vibe even the the feral children i think there's a there's a beauty about the photography but there's also a hope in the stories um obviously they're tragic stories but mm. the fact that a lot of these children are recovered and hopefully some of them don't make it unfortunately but a lot of a lot of them appear to make some sort of recovery yeah but i just think i i love the work personally and i wasn't familiar with your work at all so um i'm very grateful to having been introduced to your work and to have have met you as well so just in closing how can people find you on social media with your website if you just put out your contact details I've got quite an unusual surname. <laughs> you can find me easily. Say it again so we can all hear it. Fullerton Batten. Julia Fullerton Batten. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I kept my surname. Otherwise, I'd be Julia Murray. And there's too many of those out there. Sure, sure. <laughs> so Julia Fullerton Batten, just Google me. And I have different galleries. I'm represented by agents around the world. And honestly, you can find me. With, with a name like that, you can find me easily. So you got your website. I think you post some of your artwork on uh, your photographs Inst- on Instagram. I'm as on well, Instagram, the, Facebook. Okay, all under I'm the same name. I'm quite active. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And so my galleries as well. All right, Julia. Thank you very much indeed. It's Thanks been a real, for- real treat and a pleasure to to meet you and see your work. And I hope everyone enjoys it as much as I do. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.